Welcome back. I'm Anna Britton, Managing Editor of Edquarter. I'm delighted to be joined by an EdTech founder who is working so hard to break down barriers in the tech world and beyond. Kimberly Bryant is an inspiration to so many, especially the young black girls across the US and in South Africa who have had their horizons drastically widened by Black Girls Code, the nonprofit organization Kimberly founded in 2011 and remains CEO of. She was honored by Barack Obama, who named her a White House Champion of Change in 2013, and she has won multiple awards. Kimberly, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How is San Francisco Bay looking today? Today, San Francisco is, is quite beautiful. It's bright, sunny, and a little crispness to the air. <laughs> Typical of San Francisco, but it's a wonderful summer day. Sounds perfect. I want to go back, first of all, to before you founded Black Girls Code. Um, you began your career as an electrical engineer, then a biotech engineer. So as a child, were you always that STEM kid? Were you always into maths and science? Was there a specific point that you remember in your childhood when you thought, this is what I want to do with my life? Hmm. I was never really a STEM kid growing up, interestingly enough. I wasn't that. I was, I was definitely more into dolls than building, and I, I certainly didn't play video games or pinball machines like my older brother. That just wasn't where I resonated as far as my interest. And it also wasn't something that I was encouraged to do growing up. Like I wasn't encouraged to do chemistry or, or do experiments, some of those things that my older brother was, you know, back in the 60s, that was kind of um, really clear in terms of what were things that boys were introduced to in terms of toys and what were things that were girls toys. So it was clear um, delineation between gender roles as I was growing up. It wasn't until I really started to go into secondary school or, or middle school, junior high school, if you will, in high school, that I was on an accelerated track within my, um, my different elementary and then high schools. I was on an accelerated track where I started to then take more advanced both science as well as math courses where that talent that I had and interest in math and science really started to grow. That's really where it was seated. And I spent a lot of time, like I was on the math club, I was in the chemistry club and I was on the math team. And that's really when this gift that I had and around STEM and science really started to kind of take root. And my guidance counselors at school really encouraged me to look into engineering. But um, growing up, it wasn't really, unlike my daughter, like certainly those, those technical things, building and coding, those were things that she really liked to do as a kid, but it wasn't for me. So it was much later as I was becoming a young adult growing up that I found myself because of school and how I was tracked through school, really leaning towards the sciences and math and STEM. Okay, now you mentioned your daughter. She's got an important role to play in the story of Black Girls Code. So yeah. you, there you were working for uh, large pharmaceutical companies and then one day your daughter was looking for a computer programming course 
and she was disappointed with what she found. So yeah. tell us what happened then. Well, interestingly enough, I was really lucky uh, when I had my daughter that um, I was working in biotech at that time, and I had a really um, a really caring and understanding manager who allowed me to bring my daughter to work. So I definitely bring my daughter to work on Bring Your Daughter to Work Day, but I was able to bring her to work at other times as well. So she was always in this um, really technically focused environment as she was, you know, elementary school, lower elementary school, upper elementary, as well as middle school. And so she saw me as a scientist, as I work for a science company, but she really didn't necessarily know exactly what I did or align anything around what I did to what she might want to do in the future. And it was around middle school when she really started to get into computers, gaming in particular. She was the gaming kid, both online and offline. And when she started to be of age where she could go to a camp during the summer, I looked for one for her. Um, I found a fantastic summer camp program down at Stanford. She attended, and it was really a game changer for her and really seeing that as a potential uh, something she wanted to do, you know, as a profession when she grew up, so to speak. But the classes that we found in that summer camp in particular, and other classes as well, you know, they were just rooms full of boys, middle school boys that were not really too interested in having her, you know, build a game with them, play games with them, just... They want middle school boys don't want to be around middle school girls, but my daughter <laughs> isn't the same thing that things like to play. And so it was really frustrating for me and that thinking that, oh, she really likes this, but maybe she won't stay in it um, because none of her other friends are, are, are interested in these things. And she may be kind of pushed out of these circles with the little boys that are also into gaming and design. And it was really kind of that. Um, recognition on my part that you know I could I could maybe make the community that she needed to learn these skills with that led me to create Black Girls Code. So um, you deliver workshops to girls um, after school or during their summer holidays usually yeah. uh, with coronavirus you've had to put all your workshops um, you've had to make them virtual um, how's that going? Has that affected the way you reach these girls? Well, we initially reluctantly, um, especially on my part as CEO, pushed all of the events that we're doing. We had planned around March and into April, May, June. We pushed them to late summer, July, when we first went into shelter in place here in the U.S., and we were hopeful that we would be able to come back. We, we just went to our New York office a few weeks ago to get something. And we had put a sign on the door that said, we'll be back in 30 days. Now, the, just, we've been out of the office for three months. But, you know, we were cautiously optimistic that we would be able to come back into our in-person workshops because that's really where we feel like the magic really happens with Black Girls Code when you're in this room full of a hundred girls and you know they are all learning this to code and build apps etc but we can do that and then as it the days became months and the or weeks and the weeks became months 
we decided to take the organizational um, workshops and events that we did virtual. So now we are doing um, versions of the workshops that we would normally do in person on our virtual learning platforms. We're about to go in a few weeks into our summer camp sessions um, that'll also be on a virtual platform. And one of the interesting things that we found in this shift to virtual is that it certainly is different than an in-person workshop, but um, some of the, the gifts that we were not expecting is that now we have not just students in Houston, Texas, or in New York, we have students from all over the world on that one feed learning to code together. So we've had students tap in from the UK, from um, South Africa, from the Caribbean, from the Netherlands that are all on these feeds as we're teaching them about coding, but also introducing them to other STEM fields as well. So it's been one of the unexpected benefits of being able to transition into a virtual space that we're able to actually reach, extend and expand our reach and really make those global walls disappear in ways that we wouldn't normally be able to do in our chapter programs. Right. Um, now, can you, um, I love the story of how you turned down investment from Uber. <laughs> and I wondered if you would mind just sharing that story with, with our audience. Yes, it's interesting. It came up recently, I was talking to, a potential partner and they were asking, well, did you, would you mind um, publicizing this once if you guys are selected? And I was like, well, yeah, but that depends <laughs> on who it is because we didn't know yet who it is. And I was really thinking about our, our situation or our, our interaction with the story of Uber. So back in, I, I think it was in 2017, we had been in conversations with Uber for about a, a, a year or so about their moving their headquarters into Oakland, California. That's where BGC's headquarters is. Um, they were reaching out to community organizations, looking at ways to tap into the community. We started to have conversations with them over a period of time. And we got to a point where they were ready to make an investment in BGC. And they gave us an offer for an investment. And one of the things that resonates so clearly with the environment that we find ourselves in now is that they offered a, a part, not a, one of our partner organizations, but a, another organization that doesn't necessarily focus on black girls, girls of color, about four times the amount that they offered BGC. And it was clear inequity in that and we're very confused by it. Um, but also one of the things that was happening at that same time is that Uber uh, was getting a lot of press around some of the um, abuse that was happening within their organization to women engineers, women in the workplace. Um, and, and there was some really sad, sad stories around folks that had been pushed out or were in abusive workplaces and, and as a result um, they were really not holding up their part of the bargain in terms of creating a safe and equitable workplace as we thought about all these different variables as we you know set with this offer of support that they they had given us we decided that our mission and our vision and, and more importantly our values were not aligned with theirs and we turned the money down and 
it was a lot of money for us. Like it was a six figure amount. It was a, it was a substantial amount of funding, but when I made the decision to turn it down, I shared it with the team, the team supported it. And I just shared it with a few people in my inner circle, just and some other CEOs of other nonprofits. And then the word got out on social media in some way. It didn't get out from me. <laughs> some way the word got out um, that we had turned down this offer and it, it blew up as things do on social media. That was like on a Friday. And interestingly enough, I, you know, I just went to bed on Friday. I saw that it, the word had got out. People started to talk about it. But when I woke up on a normal Saturday morning, just drinking coffee and logged into Twitter, and I saw that someone in our community that works at another company organically started a camp crowdfunding campaign to replace that funding that we turned down with Uber. And it was I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, I literally sat there and cried because I couldn't believe it. Like, I didn't ask this individual to step in and create this crowdfunding campaign. And just the response for the community was completely overwhelming, To And it didn't stop. It was all weekend long. And as I cried, it just really resonated with me how much BGC is a part of the community. Like, we started as a grassroots community. And then every time, every single time we've ever needed anything, and we ask, or in this case, we didn't even have to ask the community, they've always been there. And that's one of the things that, you know, moved me. So I think the, the donations that came in eventually surpassed at least by half as much as what we were, would have gotten from Uber. But I, I will never forget. That's like a moment within my history of BGC. I will never forget, you know, how much it moved me in terms of how the community stepped up and they stepped in to make sure that we could continue to do this work. It's a fantastic story. And, and I do want to come on to talk a bit more about the community. Um, but for now, just back to the girls. And I'm wondering um, how you persuade young girls that um, coding is a fun thing for them to do in their free time. It's better than Xbox, it's better than Instagram <laughs> or whatever else they're doing. Uh, what, what do you say to them to make it sound fun and relevant? Well, it's interesting in the beginning, we were really not sure. So it's like when we did our pilot program back in 2011, uh, we did not necessarily know if the girls would come in and like give up part of their Saturday to be in a computer lab that was literally in the basement and <laughs> learn this thing called coding. We really didn't know. And But what we were surprised about then, and I think that continues even now, is that girls are digital natives. They are naturally engaging with technology as consumers. And the other thing I think that benefits us as an organization is that they are also both creative and change agents. So when you put those three together, like they're digital natives, they're already on these devices, they're already engaging with technology, you know, very seamlessly, but they're also creative and looking to make change. And in some way, it could be change in their life. They wanna create a business, change in their community. They're, on, on, they're not satisfied with, you know, whatever issue it is, food deserts or student success 
they are natural leaders in that way. And so when we're able to give them an opportunity to learn how to create like an application that they can then put their their store where they're making jewelry, they can create a website to do that. Or we can give them a platform to create a website that allows them to highlight a topic or a social issue that they're passionate about. That's sort of where the magic happens when they learn they can actually create the application similar to the things that they're using and help to, to advance those in things that interest them the most. And they can be creative about making that uniquely theirs that's what really gets them that's the hook but i think the thing that keeps them there and keeps them swimming in the pool is the community hands down um especially with the younger girls they are excited about coming to a black girls code workshop not always even just to code they're coming because there are other girls there and they're going to be surrounded with all these other girls in this environment that they can be themselves they can laugh they can talk and they may actually be able to build something cool as well and then even as they become adults and they're in that community as alumni we see the same thing um, they may be at schools where they're, they're the only black woman in engineering or computer science and when they're able to tap back in as alumni there's a bond there that is really bred in that community where they have support and they have connection to other girls like themselves other young women and that's what keeps them connected to the work and the things that we do at bgc are there other cities across the world whose black girls you would like to reach? Uh, you have divisions across the US and you've got one in Johannesburg. Have you got your eye on any other cities at the moment? Absolutely. Um, so we definitely want to go to different places in Africa. So we've had our eyes on some different countries across the African diaspora that we would love to be in. Um, I recently visited Brazil last year and I fell in love with the country. I fell in love with the people. Um, there's such a rich tradition and community there, as well as a strong need for our organizations like Black Girls Co. Mm -hmm. that can really create opportunities for women, and in particular women of color, but women in particular in tech. Their tech industry is thriving in Brazil, but there are very few women as startup founders, creators, etc. So huge need. Um, we've been trying to get to the UK uh, for a very long time. <laughs> so I would love for us to get to London. Uh, we definitely have friends and colleagues doing similar work in London that we're huge fans of. Um, and all across Canada, I find that off and on as I travel um, here and, and there in Canada, there's also a strong interest in the work that BGC is doing and an opportunity for us to really grow and expand there as well. Okay. Now you have said that you, um, with BGC, you wanted to change the face of technology. What did that face look like? What does it look like now? Has it changed enough? Yeah. Well, I feel that it hasn't changed to the extent that I like to see it. So I think the face of the tech technology looked like a Bill Gates. It looks like a Steve Jobs, it looked like a Mark Zuckerberg, it looked like a Jack from Twitter. Um, and it still, to some extent, looks quite similar. You know, a white male 
geeky, nerdy guy who runs a company that we all use every day. I use Twitter every day and night. I'm a Twitter fanatic. Um, but it still, it still bothers me to some extent, you know, the number of women and certainly people of color that are all over my feed. We all engage and utilize this tool, but we don't run it right? We don't run the company. We don't sit on the board of the company. We're not driving a lot of the engineering facets of the company. And I think that's problematic. Um, so I want to be around to see the day when someone that looks like my daughter or someone that looks like me, some another woman runs, another woman of color runs one of the companies that are are so rooted and foundational to the things we do each and every day. Maybe that's an artificial intelligence and the strong technologists, uh, women of color that are coming into that space and really being the thought leaders. I don't know where it will be, but I think it's necessary and important as far as technology and how innovation really is so important now, if more so than ever before, that we have women and, and women of color and a diversity of, of demographics that are leading and building these companies that really serve everyone. Mm. No, you are very much at the intersection of technology and the Black Lives Matter movement. From your perspective, what is the tech community doing for Black Lives Matter at the moment? What's it doing right? What's it doing wrong? Is it doing enough? Well, I, I can say this. I have been heartened by the fact that there's certainly been... I, I guess, more conversation around Black Lives Matter that was uncomfortable just, when was it, four years ago when we were at this moment at another time in 2016. So 2016, interestingly enough, was another turning point for Black Girls Code as we saw all of um, the protests that began in Ferguson and then spread to other cities when the term Black Lives Matter was really coined and became a mantra. Um, that is also a time where we recognize as an organization that we couldn't just focus on teaching girls to code. Like that was great. Like we were definitely about leveling up their skill sets, but we needed to add some spiritual focus to ensure that as they moved in this world, and especially in a tech space where they would be marginalized, perhaps, um, they were going to need some other things <laughs> to build resiliency, to build their self-confidence and their self-efficacy. We needed more. We needed to do more. So we started to bring in lots of wellness and spiritual um, focusing classes, meditation, wellness, yoga, into some of the sessions, especially those that we did within the summer. Um, I also found that in this moment now that we're in a different space in 2020 and everyone is giving statements about Black Lives Matter, statements can be hollow if they're not followed by action. So uh, it's been heartening to see some of those statements followed out with support to specifically racial justice organizations, social justice organizations external to the tech industry. But the, the thing that I think they don't quite get right is understanding that, yes, make a statement and support those things that are happening externally, but the issues that we're trying to 
um, dismantle are systemic and they're not just happening outside the, the walls of the tech world, they're happening internally as well. So part of this approach to really create change, if, if they are really committed to change, needs to happen where they live, in their homes, in their companies. So that means investing in organizations like Black Girls Code that actually create this pipeline of diverse talent that they don't have. That means reinvesting some of their funding that they are giving externally to creating programs that advance people of color within their own workforce. That means um, either creating a space on their boards or someone stepping down, a la uh, Alexis Ohanian, to make space for a person of color to sit on the board of a company in a governance body. Um, those are the things that they should be doing internally to create the systemic change and not only focus their giving and their gifts and their philanthropy on things that they believe are happening external to them. Mm. And what do you think educational institutions should be doing to support Black Lives Matter? I think one of the things that educational institutions need to focus on is how are we serving the whole child? So to my comment, um, we can't just teach the, you know, the rubrics of, of foundational education and not think about the world that our students inhabit. What, what is the space that they live in? So I think about how do our kids that have been first on quarantine due to COVID and perhaps not even able to engage or to have a healthy meal or to be able to do their homework because there's inequities, there's, there's digital divide has never been wider. Um, what does that mean for those students when they do go back to school? How will they, how will they level up? You know, how will they be able to um, be successful as students that are in marginalized communities, marginalized situations? And what will the school do to address those gaps? So I think we, we have to do more than just teach skills. We have to be sure that our students that are coming in to learn um, are capable of learning and being their best full of selves when they do. Because it's hard to learn when you're hungry. It's hard to learn when um, there's insecurity around where you're going to sleep at night. It's hard to learn when you don't have the tools that you need to um, be successful within your class. So I think for an educational standpoint, we have to address those issues that our community of students deals with each and every day just to live. And if we can't do that, then we're not going to be able to be successful at teaching them to learn. Mm. So to narrow that down into maybe one specific uh, thing, um, what would you like our audience, which is composed of uh, leaders in higher education and high school, uh, what, would, what one thing would you like them to do or think about when they finish, finish watching this interview? I would like for them to think about how do we create equity for the students that show up each day in our classrooms. So that may mean equity of 
um, how they are able to tap in. Like, how do we create equitable spaces where they are able to learn? Um, do they have the tools that they need? Um, do they have access to broadband Wi-Fi? And, and what about those base, basic social emotional needs around security, around having a meal or having a safe spaces? And if you can't address those issues, then I think there is some work to be done. And in the early part of, of mapping out your strategy for teaching um, to ensure that once the student arrives, they have everything they need to thrive. Mm. Well, um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. <laughs> However, you, the audience, can find out more about Kimberly and Black Girls Code by following Kimberly on Twitter. As she said, she is a Twitter fanatic. She is <laughs> incapable of a boring tweet. And her Twitter handle is at six gems. That's the number six and gems with a G. Um, blackgirlscode.com is where you can find out more about her work and you can also donate to help young black girls in America um, and around the world learn coding. Uh, you can volunteer. Thank you again, Kimberly, very, very much. And all the best to you and to Black Girls Code from all of us here at Edquarter in Bristol. Awesome. Thank you, Anna.